This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Flashpoint, shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams, and this week on Flashpoint, we sit with members of a victim's advocacy group to talk about the services extended to victims of violent crime in Philadelphia. It's very important for victims to know that someone really cares. It's just not a job for them. Our newsmaker of the week is a Delco native and Temple graduate who's debuting her first film. She says she wants to tell the stories we want to see. I want to tell stories that are relatable to everyone, but that highlight the black community in a positive way. Our changemaker this week is making a difference in the community by making deliveries in the pandemic just in time for the holidays. It's really important for us to, to support our communities and build our communities. It's a half hour you don't want to miss. Coming up on Flashpoint. Hello and welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Raquel Williams, and just about every day we learn of a violent crime being committed on the streets of Philadelphia. We hear about the victims, the perpetrators, and of course, our lawmakers who assure us that efforts are being made to combat the growing issue. But what you don't hear too much about is what happens to the survivors and their families after the fact. How have their lives changed and what resources are offered to them to help them deal with the trauma and get back to some sense of normalcy in their lives? Joining me today to discuss this are two representatives from Northwest Victim Services based in Germantown. Melanie Nelson is the executive director and Wedney Lusant is their court and community advocate. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. And by the way, the mission of MVS is to provide prompt, effective, and holistic services to victims of crime in Northwest Philadelphia while increasing strategies to elevate community safety. But before we get into the core issues, let's first talk about the history of the organization. Melanie, how did this all start? So Northwest Victim Services is actually the first community-based agency in the city of Philadelphia, created and dedicated to helping victims and witnesses of crime. Catherine Backrack used to work for Interfaith in Germantown, and she noticed that in the 80s, people were coming to her for resources that were victimized, and there were little to no resources in the city of Philadelphia. So she started Northwest Victim services. It went so well, six of the agencies were modeled after Northwest Victim Services, and we all work off of the our police districts in mm-hmm. our area. So the Northwest has the 5th, 14th, 35th, and 39th police districts, and the other community-based agencies in the city of Philadelphia do the same. So what types of services do you offer victims of violent crimes? All of our services are free to victims, witnesses, and community members affected by crime. So we help them with filing a claim through victims' compensation with lost wages, unpaid medical bills, counseling. We have an in-house counseling as well, and there's no waiting list currently. Funeral expenses, 
which is it's big for us to where we help families if their loved one did not have life insurance, mm-hmm. mileage, child care, loss of support, as well as court accompaniment. Speaking of court accompaniment, uh, Wendy, why don't you let us know how you step in and get involved with the victims of violent crimes when it comes to legal situations? Currently, I am in uh, the Criminal Justice Center in the non-fatal shooting courtroom that operates two days out of the week. So I provide support for victims, emotional support. I serve as kind of like a, I want to say liaison between the district attorneys and the um, victim. So I explain to them the court proceedings. I break down kind of sort of like the legal terms if they're unfamiliar with them. I let them know that their rights to either make a statement and, you know, just answer any questions that they might have. And I also let them know of the services that Northwest provides with, uh, you know, lost wages, uh, relocation, which is a major one, uh, medical expenses, because Mm -hmm. most of the victims that I get are shooting victims who, you know, may or may not have insurance or their insurance may not cover everything. I let them know about the counseling services and, you know, just provide uh, overall support for the victims while they're inside of court. Because, you know, a lot of people already don't want to be there. So mm-hmm. sometimes knowing that there's someone there with them and they're not alone, it, it sometimes can be helpful. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. I mean, once you're you're a victim of a violent crime, you know, your mind isn't really where it should be. Uh, you know, whether you have to go back to work or you have to take care of X, Y or Z, uh, having somebody there that's advocating for you that you can trust. And I I can imagine that you have to build up a sense of trust with these victims in order for you to deliver this, the the services to them, right? Yes. Paint a picture, if you will, of a person who say you're dealing with a lot of gunshot victims, say a gunshot victim survived and they come to you for services. Walk us through from beginning to end how everything is disseminated, how it works. So with Northwest Victim Services, I'll tell you about two great collaborations that we have. Mm-hmm. One is Temple University Hospital and Einstein Healthcare Network. With Temple University Hospital, they have 24-hour trauma advocates, mm-hmm. which is dynamic. The collaboration that we have with Temple University Hospital is like none other in the city of Philadelphia, and it's under Scott Charles, who's the trauma manager. So there's a shooting victim, mm-hmm. and Temple University, their their trauma advocates are reaching out to Northwest Victim Services in real time. Okay. So we're serving victims in less than 24 hours of their victimization. Even if it's a homicide, we're serving their family members in less than 24 hours. So I will reach out to them to let them know about our services and and how we're able to help. We will put them in contact with the medical examiner's office if they need that. We'll file the claim for them if there's lost wages or unpaid medical bills or like Wendy said, relocation is huge. Mm. And a lot of our victims and co-homicide survivors need that resource. I explained to my victims and co-homicide survivors that we are not a one and done agency and we'll be in their life for as long as they will allow us to be. So whether they need us a week from now, two weeks, a year, two years, we are in their lives for as long as they will allow us to be. And if someone is apprehended, then Wedney is going with them to court, which is that experience is like none other having to testify in front of the offender 
and and their family members and friends can be very frightening. So. Right, right. Whitney, why don't you speak a little bit uh, to that? I can imagine how that must be just a trauma all over again. It is. And um, quite frankly, like, for example, today I had court earlier today and I get a lot of victims that come in and they just flat out say, I do not want to be here. I am scared. You know, I sometimes the offenders are out on bail, which is, you know, sometimes surprising for shooting cases. And a lot of times I have to explain to a victim, you know, why are they, you know, even able to sit in the same courtroom with someone who committed such a violent act answering questions about certain charges. Um, sometimes people don't understand why there are some things charged and why aren't others. You know, for example, there's a lot of people um, who get shot multiple times, unfortunately, and are only charged with aggravated assault as opposed to attempted murder, for example. So just trying to explain to a victim, um, you know, why is it that they were hurt so badly, but it doesn't seem to be taken as serious. Um, it, it, it takes a lot of um, definitely patience on both ends because, you know, people are emotional. It's an emotional day for everyone and not just the victims, but you have, you know, defendants, families, you know, who, um, who also, they're there, you know, in the courtroom. So just trying to keep everyone's emotions, you know, in line so that, you know, no further consequences are you know, brought throughout the day, because sometimes it does get very emotional in the courtroom. So it takes it takes a lot of, you know, discipline in that regard. Right. Melanie, you mentioned that you are in their lives within 24 hours of the offense. How, how important is that? Time is of the essence with, with regards to that? For me, it is. And and I want them to be able to know that, that someone cares. Right. So for me, this is not a job. This is this is a passion. I love what I do. And I see that in in Wedney, who is my court and community and my right hand. So she's she's dynamic as well. And then we have one other advocate who is Kwamina Greer, who is dynamic also. So there are three of us. At one time it used to be six. And even with that team of six, we were serving probably over 3,000 victims a year. So even with the three of us, mm-hmm. we're still serving a couple thousand victims a, a year. So it's very important for victims to know that someone really cares. It's just not a job for them. Right, right. Now you say you're in their lives for as long as they will have you. Typically, on average, how long are you in the lives of victims and their families? So I don't think I've like not stop speaking to a victim. Like it's nothing for me around this time of the year to shoot a text mm. to some of my co-homicide survivors. I try to reach all of them right. and I'll just send a text and just say, know that you are in my thoughts and in my prayers. So that could be victims who I've served or co-homicide victims who I've served two, three, four, five years ago. But I just want them to know that I care. That's great. That's great. That's important, too. You know, I don't think people realize you were talking about family, and I wanted to definitely talk a little bit more about the services that's available for the victims' families because, you know, people don't realize that it's not just the victims. You've got mom, dad, parent, mom, mom, aunties, you know, people whose lives are upended and, 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 and disrupted because of, you know, things that have happened to their loved one. What are some of the different services for family members, extended family members, and, and how important is it for them to also have services? It is very important. Um, you can imagine if there's a mother or a father who was shot, 
then the income is disrupted. Yeah. yeah because of their victimization. So it affects their household. It affects their children. So it, it not only affects just that victim or that homicide victim, it affects the family as a whole. So we do offer free therapy to the family members. And I try to rely on other resources within the city of Philadelphia and heavily in the Germantown area to be able to help people. So I get a lot. Some people, some victims or co-homicide survivors may fall behind in their utilities or rent. So I try to have other resources to be able to help them in that way as well. I would imagine that it's not on your radar unless you are are affected by this. So, of course, I, I can imagine people don't realize the resources and the rights that victims have in the Commonwealth. What are some of the rights uh, in Pennsylvania that uh, victims have that folks may not be aware of? Well, one of the rights that I mentioned is they have the right to um, make a victim impact statement that usually happens, you know, within the court proceedings mm -hmm. um, later on, um, usually after trial um, around sentencing, they have that right. Um, they have the right to be present at court proceedings. Courts, uh, courts are usually open to the public um, anyway, but they do have that right to be present um, for their proceedings. They have the right to victim compensation in Pennsylvania. The victim has a right to know if the offender was arrested. Mm -hmm. They have a right to know about the sentencing. And they also have a right, if the person is apprehended, to submit a restitution claim. Right. Okay. You know, you talked about Scott Charles and Temple University. And, uh, you know, I did talk to him a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that we were talking about is the great need for this service. But um, with so many victims, do you find it hard to keep up with the demand? We never wow. turn anyone wow. away. And Wendy will tell you, Wendy probably turns her computer off sometimes. She's <laughs> not going to admit it. But I will send emails in the, in the middle of the night. I will send emails during the weekend. And Scott's team can reach me mm -hmm. in the evening, weekends, holidays, but I'm turning no one away. Anyone who is in need of service, Northwest Victim, the Northwest Victim Services staff, we try, try our hardest to service them. But no, we've never turned anyone away that was that's in need. Thank God. Yes. <laughs> what about mental health? That's something that, you know, uh, I'm really big on. And especially after a violent crime, I know some people don't turn to a therapist. Some people don't turn to mental health. But, you know, when you're a victim of something like that, how important is it for mental health services for folks who experience violent crime? I think it's extremely important because when you have those untreated traumas, then you have more incidents that occur. Yes. And I want to talk about Dr. Janet Etsy. She actually saw an article on Northwest Victim Services. Janet Etsy is a licensed psychologist who resides in Mount Airy. She saw an article on Northwest Victim Services and said, I want to give back to the community. I want to offer free counseling services to Northwest Victim Services. I, I had tears of joy. Wow. I already have a therapist who is, who is dynamic and awesome, but it's about not just talking a good game, 
when people say they want to do something and give back to their community, she actually did something. So she came on board with Northwest Victim Services, I want to say in May, Mm -hmm. and has already seen over 100 victims, co-homicide survivors. So this is why we, we, we don't have to turn anyone away. And this woman, Dr. Etsy, is in the Northwest Victim Services office on a Saturday. Wow. Wow. I'm just, I'm, I'm floored. But the team that I have, which again, is not many of us, I am so proud of them. We work all the time to ensure no one falls through the cracks or to ensure that all of their needs are met. And if we are not able to, We'll still provide services, but even if we're not able to, they know we tried our hardest to help them. Melanie, I heard you a few weeks ago make a pretty impassioned plea uh, for people to speak up when they know something, when they see something. Uh, You know, there's a silence going on out there in the community. People don't want to say anything, so to speak, uh, for reasons that I I guess some people could, could understand. But this really, with what we're facing right now in Philadelphia, is not the time to be silent. I agree 100%. But let me say this. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to what Wedney said earlier, relocation is huge and it's a great need. If we want people to be able to testify, if we want people to be able to give a statement to law enforcement, we have to understand that there's a, a major safety issue. Okay. So sometimes we may need to relocate families. We may need to relocate victims. And that's not always readily available. With all the gun violence that's going on in the city today, a lot of people are afraid to go to court to testify. A lot of people are afraid to speak to law enforcement. And that's real. And we have to understand it and accept it. So if we want them to come forth to to say something, we really have to figure out how we can protect them. Right. So what's what's law enforcement saying? I mean, what's the relationship like between you and law enforcement, first of all, when it comes to all of this? And is that something they'll they'll be able to facilitate? So the four police districts that I work with, all four of those captains are dynamic with the 5th, 14th, 35th and 39th. All of those victim assistance officers. I work with them every day. They are dynamic. The inspector of the Northwest section of Philadelphia is dynamic. The Philadelphia Police Department does not relocate. So the detective on a case can actually make a recommendation to the district attorney's office. And then in turn, the district attorney's office sends that referral for the relocation. So the Philadelphia Police Department doesn't relocate. Okay. Okay. Is there a way that a relocation uh, situation can be more expedited and can be more readily available for victims? Yes. And I have a great sister agency, Concilio. So they have a program where they can assist with victims who need to relocate and they will help with some of the move-in costs with the victim. Mm -hmm. But then the victim does have to come up with some of the funds, which... I, I probably send multiple, multiple referrals to Concilio, and they have been excellent. They have been very excellent. And again, the detectives from the Philadelphia Police Department can send a referral to the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office to get the ball rolling to help the family with relocation. Now, again, that's 
when someone has to be apprehended. That's when a district attorney's office comes into play. And there may be extenuating circumstances where the detective can still make that request if there's like ongoing threat. So there are requirements that have to be met before someone can be relocated. Now, of course, relocation doesn't automatically or necessarily mean protection because they're relocated, but then they're kind of on their own at that point, right? That, well, it's true. And then some may be able to relocate. They can. They don't have to relocate in Philly. So some okay. can choose to move out of Philly. Some can choose to move out of PA. But think about that mother who saw her son get murdered right across the street from her home and she owns her home. Yeah. So that relocation will be extremely hard. Like she has to actually sell her home. Right. So that $2,000 from that sister agency that I have, it, that's not even a drop in the bucket. Right. You know what I'm saying? So there are certain situations that hinder some people from relocating, but they need to relocate. So relocation is, is a huge issue. Okay. Also a huge issue is the fact that there are so many kids being affected, Melanie and Wedney. And now you're finding yourselves going into schools, uh, talking to small children. I mean, what what is that like for for you guys? Well, um, prior to COVID, we used to um, go to schools and we used to give um, presentations about gun violence, bullying. Um, Bullying is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, Gun violence and things of that nature. Um, and it's, it's difficult because a lot of these, you know, children, they, um, they experience gun violence near their homes on their blocks. Um, you know, a lot of them, I believe one day I asked, you know, how many students have been affected by gun violence, um, you know, just within their family lives and several students from one classroom, they raised their hands. It was like a third grade classroom, I believe, you know, people's cousins, um, some kids, you know, see the gun violence in front of them. So it's, um, it's you find yourself, you know, trying to explain to a 12, 10 year old how, you know, one minute their cousin is, you know, playing with them, the next minute they're at a funeral. Um, it's hard, you know, and a lot of these kids, they want to stay strong. They don't want to cry in front of their peers and they don't want to, you know, express, you know, how they're feeling because the whole family is feeling it. But, you know, you have these children and not only do they not understand what's going on, but, you know, they don't know how to express their emotions. And then, you know, you have angry children, you have bad children, and you have just confused children who don't know what's going on. So, um, you know, I feel like that's something that people sometimes don't really know because when a trauma happens, you think about your own emotions, but, you know, everybody around you is affected. You know, a shooting might happen on a block and you think the family immediately, which of course is definitely, you know, the family is the primary concern, but then you have the neighbor who also knew this person and the lady down the street, you know, that used to say hello to that person every day. So, you know, it's whole communities that, you know, are unfortunately affected. Right, right. And then you kids being affected, kids being hurt, and we all know hurt people hurt people, and we've got the cycle, the cycle that yeah. somehow needs to be needs to be broken. And, I, and I'm, I'm yeah. guessing that's where, you know, these services and, and therapy, especially even for kids, comes into play as well. I mean, yes, unfortunately, the defendants are, um, you know, getting younger and younger in court. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a lot of juvenile defendants, you know, certain court cases can't even get through because they can't come in from the juvenile facility. 
that they're in. Um, there was a case not too long ago where um, this young man's attorney said that his life crack started at 12 years old. So he's been in the system since 12. And this is unfortunately not uncommon. Um, I've heard plenty of stories like that, you know, and it's not necessarily saying that this person, you know, was a bad kid. They might just have not had their, um, you know, situations or traumas addressed at the right. right time. Right. And can I say that when we go into the schools, we used to take a gentleman by the name of Jason Suber with us, and this is pre-COVID, and he was shot 16 times. So we would actually take a shooting victim with us. 16 times. Yes. yes live, you don't get shot 16 times and live to tell about it for no reason. He was shot 16 times, yes. And he would go in and, and speak to the, the, the children. Wow. Well, you, both of you, actually everyone uh, in your organization, you know, we, I'm sure everyone appreciates the work that you do. Uh, and of course, the passion that you have for it uh, uh, day to day. And I know it's an uphill battle, um, but uh, at least we have the two of you and others like you warriors in the communities that are fighting uh, to, to make a difference. We've been visiting with Melanie Nelson and Wedney Lusand of Northwest Victim Services in Germantown. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Raquel Williams. Her first film is already being compared to movies such as Love and Basketball. KYW's Shara Day Howard talks with Delco native and Temple University graduate Lydia Peterson. In an industry where talent isn't always the bar to be met or recognized, those on the margins often find themselves outside of opportunity. Women, people of color, the list is long. But filmmakers like Philadelphia's own Lydia Peterson are working to change that. Lydia, so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. Now, your debut film, Walk On, is making headlines across the world. How did you do what seems to be impossible for so many aspiring filmmakers like you? From the beginning, how did you get the story made? I played basketball in high school. And I wanted to play, you know, beyond just high school. Um, I thought there could be some scholarship in it. I thought that there, you know, I loved the game as well. So I figured why not pursue this? But I had been injured every summer. So like it prohibits your ability to really sort of market yourself as a basketball player. So nobody was looking for me. Nobody was checking for me. (laughs) So I was like, well, I got accepted into Temple. Why don't I just try and walk on. And so I called them every day. I called the coaches' offices every day to try and figure out if I could get there, get on the team. And from there, you know, I just realized being a walk-on is hard and no one really talks about it. Um, So from there, I kind of got the idea that like, oh, this would be a good, this could be a cool story. Obviously not exactly true life, but like this could be a cool story. Everybody likes like a hero, like trying to overcome something, chasing a dream. Like that's, those are good bones for a story. So I think I, I had the idea in my mind, but I didn't act on it until like a little, you know, a few years back and I started just writing. I, I There's something in my head where I remembered like me and my dad would go and play basketball in, in Lansdowne. We would just go play together. And I wrote it out as a scene. Uh, just kind of like trash he would talk to me, trash I would talk to him. <laughs> you know, just, and, and that was that was the first scene of the movie Walking On. And then I kind of crafted the movie around that. And so from there, 
I was like, well, I want to make this into a film. And I was like, well, I think I can, I think I have the skill set to do it. I get, you know, it's falling into my lap, but it, I also think I have the skill set to do it. Um, so from there, I needed to round up a team. <laughs> but, you know, folks that I had met through my work, folks that I had met at school, and we figured out how to move from there together. So let's talk about the film. Walk on. How would you describe it? So I would describe the film as film is about a young woman who is chasing after a dream. She, she has big hoop dreams. She is trying to make a basketball team. But more than that, she is learning about perseverance. She's learning about values, about family values. And she is, she finds herself in a situation, you know, with two guys that she meets and they're all friends, but they're push, they're pulling and pushing her in different directions. And so to be able to make this team, she has to figure out what's good for her through the conflict and see if she can make it to her goal. This is your debut film and you've already been compared to Issa Rae, let's see, Ava DuVigny and Lena Waithe. Who do you look up to? Who do you aspire to be? Well, I see other directors that I'm a huge fans of. So like Melina Moustakis for like Queen and Slim or Dina Prince Bythewood. I mean, she gets under the radar. My film gets a little bit of comparison to Love and Basketball because that's her film. But but people don't talk enough about the fact that she did The Old Guard, which is like a completely different genre. And it can be sometimes difficult for a director to go from maybe sort of drama into action and still capture the stories like that. Now, let's talk about your love for the industry, your love for film. I think it started a little bit, my love for the genre started a little bit with being interested in a lot of things. A lot of times when you come out of high school, they tell you that you have to know what you want to study, like you you know you can't waste time in college everybody knows it's expensive you don't want to waste time in college so you should know what you want to do so for me I just found my interests were all over the place I loved sports I liked photography I really liked music um, I loved to write and so it was like all these things that I was like you know semi all right at (laughs) and I just found that being behind the camera is where all of those things sort of convulged or like came together. And I think out of that, you know, it started with some photography and I was like, oh, there's a bigger story here than sometimes just one frame can capture. So I started getting into like a little bit visual storytelling and I was always writing, I was writing in high school, writing later. Um, And so it just seemed like the perfect place to combine all of the skills that I was interested in, all the skills that I had. And I started watching movies in a different way once I kind of identified that for me, Um, like listening to commentaries and trying to figure out how things work Um, and, you know, just being pretty like self-taught about film. And so I think I just got passionate about it and just, it's like being passionate about all the things that you're already passionate about just in a, under a larger envelope. So that's kind of how the love for film kind of grew and developed. So ultimately, what's that goal? What's that thing you want to reach? More of a specific goal for me is just I want to tell stories that are relatable to everyone, but that highlight the Black community in a positive way. Just because Black folks aren't uh, a monolith, we all have very different experiences. And I got tired of seeing you know, all the roles for Black people be so stereotypical. Um, and so I figured instead of just complaining about the problem, I could I could add to the solution. And that's that was sometimes out of the frustration is some of the best work. So um, 
but yeah, for me, it's more so about it's more so about getting the getting some of the stereotypes to be switched. But I don't mind doing that across genres. I mean, I don't mind that at all. I love that. So let's talk about change, the change you want to make. You have a determination to offset a lot of these imbalances and biases in the industry. Open doors for others. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I just, I want to make stuff that, you know, can further and push the conversation in a positive way. I want to make stuff that my parents can watch. I want to make stuff that my family's proud of. Like it's, you know, not to say that everything's going to be G-rated or whatever, but just like, I, I want to make stuff that pushes the conversation forward. I want to see more black people in nerdy roles and sciencey roles and you know, like that kind of thing. Normal roles. Like, cause that's us too. That's people of color. Yeah. That's all us. So, you know, I just, I'm ready and I'm just, I'm like locked and loaded. I'm ready to go. Okay. Now what's up next? What's the next thing for you? Yeah. The next thing for me is a documentary. This will be a little bit of change of pace for me. Um, I am in the process of writing a second feature film. So we'll see what happens with that. But for now I'm writing, well, not writing, but I'm, I'm in pre-production for a documentary right now that I'm, I'm excited about. So what do you want people to walk away with, pun intended, from this film? Right, right. Um, I guess a couple things. Um, the importance of, of family and communication. Um, the importance of perseverance and chasing after a goal. The importance of hard work. Um, and just the idea that the destination is not always the end of like the most important part of the journey. The journey can be the destination. Um, so just preparing yourself for those moments because they will come. Um, so definitely, yeah, just being less caught up about the destination and enjoying the journey. Okay, so that feeds perfectly into my next question, which is what do you tell those aspiring filmmakers out there who think this is absolutely impossible? Getting that film made is a pipe dream. I tell them just get started. <laughs> get started just get started whatever you can make make it whatever you can write write it whatever you can dream do it thank you so much for being here lydia it's a complete pleasure and honor if you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one patriot home care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff don't be overwhelmed by all the choices let patriot home care help patriot home care is growing with offices throughout philadelphia and now in delaware Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot HomeCare. WWE's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker, Ruben Jones. He's the executive director of Frontline Dads. Now, Ruben and Frontline Dads always have something going on in the community. We'll get to a couple of their latest service projects here shortly. But what I want to bring particular attention to this week is their community food bank delivery service. It services elders, veterans, and new mothers, etc. It'll be going on through the holiday season. So if you know someone in need, stay tuned until the end for information on how to get those free food deliveries. Ruben Jones is well known around the city of Brotherly Love for his community service and social justice advocacy. He's the executive director of Frontline Dads, where they mentor at-risk youth and head other violence prevention programs. So that's really important for us to, to support our communities and build our communities. One of the latest acts of service has been keeping an eye on the students at a North Philly middle school during dismissal time due to the uptick in gun violence around schools. But every Thursday and Saturday, you can find him and other volunteers handing out free 
food. I know that there's a lot of turkey giveaways or whatever, and that's beautiful, and we support that. And when we can get them, you know, we, we, we give them away as well. But people also need staples, right, in their, in their cupboards in order to have meals beyond the one holiday. For the past year, the free food program has brought a warm heart and a full stomach to communities around the city. And during this holiday season, they're also making special deliveries right to the doorsteps of those who need it most. But yeah, the goal is for seniors, veterans who may have limited mobility or disability or transportation issues, new mothers or expecting mothers. Those are kind of the folks we're focused on. He says they want to get the word out so they can help more people. Anyone interested in volunteering or signing up for a delivery can reach out. If you're interested in volunteering or seeing if you're eligible for those free food deliveries, you can reach out to Frontline Dads by email, frontlinedads at aol.org, or you can call or text them. The number is 484-532-8772. Again, that's 484-532-8772. As always, if you miss this information, you can find it on our website. And don't forget, if you know a Philly Rising Changemaker we should highlight next, please let me know. I'm always looking for people making a difference in our communities. You can tweet me at A-R-L-E on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Well, that's it for this week's Flashpoint. I'll leave you with this quote by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Never give up, for that is just the place and time that the tide will turn. For Shara Day Howard, Antoinette Lee, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Thanks for joining us. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.